Well, hey, welcome to First Church Live. My name's Chad. So glad you're joining us from wherever you're worshiping. I know we have a ton of people out throughout the 918 and all over the country who are joining us for worship right now. So if you guys here at North Garnett in person, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family. So glad to have you guys. Well, last Sunday, we launched a new series called Running on Full. And we talked about how many people in our culture don't run on full. They run on empty because this culture, this world that we live in has has a way of depleting us, of draining us of the life that God wants us to live. But we don't have to live that way because we talked last week how Jesus came so you could live a healthy, engaged, authentic, and fully charged life. In fact, that's exactly what he teaches. He says in John 10 verse 10, says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus doesn't want us running on empty. He doesn't want us living a half life or an incomplete life. He wants us living a full life, a whole life, the life that God created us to live. And he shows us how to live that type of life, how to run on full. Because just like a car that runs on gas, if your tank is empty, you're not going to get very far. And the same is true when it comes to our lives. If our emotional tank is empty or spiritual tank or physical tank or social tank, whatever is empty, we're not going to get very far. And it was interesting, after I launched this series this past Sunday, I left after services, went to the parking lot, got into my car, and when I turned the key, this is what I saw. Are you ready? Yeah, my gas light was on. <laughs> as soon as I got in my car, that was not planned, that was unintentional, didn't even realize it. A lot of times on Sundays, I'm in such a rush to get here, don't even pay attention. But it came on, and it was just a sign to me how quickly, a reminder to me how quickly you can run out of gas. You can run out of gas and not even know it. And the same is true for our lives as well. So what we're doing in this series is we're looking at our uh, gauges and the dials of our hearts, of our souls, to make sure that we're not running on empty, but we're letting Jesus show us how to run on full. And last week, we looked at one word that has the tendency to drain us of life, and that was the word pace. Because if you live at an unhealthy pace, an ungodly pace, it can wear you out. It can drain you. And so we talked last week about how God's Word shows us how to live a healthy rhythm for life. And so if you missed that sermon, I, would, uh, I ask that you get online, listen to it again, because I think something we all struggle with is living a healthy rhythm, living out a healthy pace for life, resting as we should rest. But today we're going to look at another word that also has a tendency to drain us of life, and it's this, people. People have a tendency to drain us, don't they? Not, not all people. But there are some people who just have a knack of robbing us of joy, stealing our contentment away, ruining our lives. There are people out there who are unhealthy influences on us, negative influences that just absolutely wear us out. And you've probably heard me say this before in past sermons. Our enemy knows how to put the wrong people in the right place to discourage us. And I think we all know that's true. We've all experienced that. And here's the thing. When it comes to unhealthy negative influences, negative people don't just rub off on us. They do, and we become more negative by simply being around them. But also, unhealthy negative influences, well, they end up holding us back, keeping us from actually living the life that God wants us to live, experiencing the joy 
that Jesus wants us to experience. Let me illustrate it like this. We have an awesome, incredible next-gen ministry here at First Church. And we have a great early childhood program. We have a great first kids ministry and first students ministry. I love our next-gen ministry across the board here at First Church. And I say that not just because I work with our staff that run those ministries. I know how much they love Jesus, how much they love our kids and students, and they work very hard. But I also say that because I've got two kids involved in our next-gen ministry. And I've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old, one's involved in EC and the other is involved in First Kids and they love it here and I see the impact that our church is having on them. But my three-year-old daughter, Addie, they're learning a memory verse right now. They're always learning a memory verse but they're learning a memory verse and she's just at the age where she's starting to get it, starting to repeat it over and over again and the memory verse that they're trying to learn right now is Psalm 139 verse 14. You've probably heard it before. I am fearfully and wonderfully made and so we're having her say this over and over again and she's getting it and she knows that there's just one problem. For some reason, when she says fearfully, the word carefully comes out instead. So she says, I am carefully and wonderfully made. And so we just think it's cute, and we keep saying, no, it's fearfully, but she says carefully, and we just have kind of let it go for now because it is cute. And the other night after we gave her her bath, she was in bed, and we were trying to go over it with her, and she just kept saying it. And so we pulled out a phone and filmed her. And so I thought I would show it to you guys. Take a look at her saying her memory verse. I am carefully, wonderfully made. I love the thumb at the end, you know? And so we thought that was cute, and so we sent the grandparents and all that. And Alice and I talked about why don't we put it up on social media, and then we backed away from it because we said the moment we put it up there, somebody's going to make a comment, that's not the right verse. Those aren't the right words. She said it wrong. It's fearfully, not carefully. We just knew somebody would say something, so we thought instead of hearing from those negative voices, let's just not put it up. But you may be wondering, well, why in the world did I decide to show it to you now then? If we were worried about that when it came to social media, how come I'm showing it to our entire church at this point? Well, let's look at this word fearfully again, because I did a study on this word this week, because that's what I do. I'm a preacher. And so when I did a study on this Hebrew word fearfully, in one commentary that I read, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars writes this, that that word actually means fashioned with skill and what? Care. There it is, carefully. So I'm just going to say it. My daughter is a genius, okay? Maybe a Hebrew scholar. I don't know. But still, she had it right. We are carefully made by our God, okay? So I thought I would share that now because I don't care anymore. She's right. But with all that aside, isn't that, isn't it a shame that we're so worried about offending people or somebody going negative or getting mad at us, that sometimes we don't experience the joy that we should be experiencing. I mean, we live in a culture of outrage where everybody is offended over something, and you're, you're afraid to say anything. You can put up a statement on social media or say something among your coworkers that you think is innocent, that you weren't trying to offend anybody, and somebody picks it apart and gets mad, and it's sad. That that's the day that we live in. There are so many unhealthy negative influences around us that just hold us back from really enjoying life as God wants us to enjoy it. Now, let me just clarify. When I say negative influences, I'm talking about people who demonstrate a spirit of cynicism, pessimism, and distrust that contradicts the joy, grace, and hope that Jesus brings to our lives. I want to clarify that because 
When I say negative influence, I'm not talking about people who give us constructive criticism or hold us accountable or trying to help us out by giving us wisdom or advice or guidance or even those who just state their opinions. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about people who demonstrate a spirit of cynicism, pessimism, and distrust on a regular basis that contradicts the joy, grace, and hope that Jesus brings to our lives. And I guarantee if I were to take a poll right now, you don't have to raise your hand, but if I ask you to raise your hand, Every hand would go up if I asked, how many of you guys have been hurt by somebody like that? Some of you are going to raise your hands right now. I told you not to raise your hands because it's true. I bet all of us have been hurt some way or another, either by what someone has said or done or maybe what they've said about us, to us. We've been hurt in some way by someone like this, someone like that. And it's sad, but that's the world we live in, and it's the world that we've lived in for a very long time. Now, I dare say that because of this pandemic we're in, the negativity, I mean, it's been exasperated in our culture right now. I think we can all acknowledge that. But really, from the beginning of time, there's always been those who have gone negative, who have gone against the joy that Jesus wants us to live in. And Jesus actually addresses this in Matthew chapter 5. He gives us some words of comfort. And listen to what he says in Matthew 5 verse 11. He says, people will insult you and hurt you. They will lie and say all kinds of evil things about you because you follow me. But when they do, you will be blessed. Rejoice and be glad because you have a great reward waiting for you in heaven. People did the same evil things to the prophets who lived before you. Now, did you catch what Jesus didn't say? Jesus did not say that when you follow me, you won't have to face negativity anymore. You won't have to face negative influences anymore. People won't hurt you or harm you or say bad things about you or mistreat you or persecute you. That won't happen anymore once you follow me. In fact, he says the opposite. When you follow him, it will probably increase. But notice what he does say. He says that even though people will insult you, even though people will say negative things about you or do negative things to you, your life can still be blessed. In other words, you can still live in God's blessing. God's favor can still be upon you. You can still live a full, complete, whole life in Him. You can still live life on full even though the world around you is attacking you and it feels like it's against you. He goes on to say that we can even rejoice and be glad while people are insulting us. While people are trying to harm us, while people are against us and persecuting us, we have reason for joy and to be glad. And you know why? Because he says we're not, we're not looking around at what everybody else is looking at. We're looking up. It's a matter of perspective. We're able to see past all the negativity, see through all the neg- negativity, because we know this is not what we're living for. We look up. And because we know our reward is in heaven and we know God is in control and we are dearly and relentlessly loved by him and he has a purpose for our lives and he is working in us and through us, we have the confidence of knowing that what we see around us, our present circumstances, that's not all there is. We are living for something more. And as followers of Jesus, we can control our outlook even when we can't control the outcome. We may not be able to control the outcome. In other words, the situation that we currently find ourselves in, the circumstances we currently find ourselves in, but we can control our outlook because it's a matter of perspective. Because no matter what, we know who is ultimately in control. We know who is all-powerful. 
We know who created all things and who's going to bring everything to an end. We know who is working out his plan. And he is on our side. You see, joy that's rooted in our circumstances will always be fleeting. But joy that's rooted in God's character lasts forever. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. His will, his mission will still be accomplished. His promises are still true and he will deliver on them. And he's not scared by a pandemic. He's not even shocked by it. He's not scared or shocked by a natural disaster. He's not shocked by political unrest or any other situation we may face. He not only saw it coming, he's prepared for it, and he is over it. He is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the Alpha and the Omega. He spoke everything into existence, and he will call it all to an end. He is in charge. He is on the throne. He is our God. He loves us, and he is on our side. And because of that, in the midst of negativity and pain and hurt, we can press on. We can keep going. We can do what God is calling us to do because we don't look around. We look up. That's where our motivation comes from. That's how we keep going. Now, I'll be the first to say, that at times is a lot easier said than done. Because when you're facing negativity head on, it's easy to want to give up. And I think that's why Jesus says what he says at the end of that passage we just looked at, Matthew 5. Look at verse 12. He says, people did the same evil things to the prophets who lived before you. I think Jesus says that because he lets us know Facing negativity and insults and mistreatment, that's been going on since the very beginning. But God's people who have looked up have always found a way through it. So he's letting us know, go back and look at the examples of godly men and women of old who have survived their negative circumstances, who have powered through those circumstances and learn from their example. So that's what I would like to do with the rest of the time we have. I want to look at an example of the Old Testament when one of God's men, one of his prophets, was surrounded by negative influences, unhealthy negative influences, and God helped him in that moment. The guy that we're going to look at, his name is Moses. You've probably heard of him before. And we're going to look at a passage in his life that comes in Numbers chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me Numbers chapter 11. That's what we're going to study today. And we're going to look at a passage that isn't one that normally makes it into the movies about Moses. I mean, when you hear the name Moses, you think of, you know, the Ten Commandments or the parting of the Red Sea or the plagues in Egypt and all that cool stuff. But we're going to look at one of those passages that normally doesn't make it into the movie, but I think we can learn a whole lot from it. It's Numbers chapter 11. So as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context. God has already delivered his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed and mistreated, abused while they were in Egypt as slaves, but they cried out, God heard their cry, and he delivered them from their oppression. So he sends plagues on Egypt, he sends them through the Red Sea, remember he parts the Red Sea, and he takes care of the Egyptian army, and then he leads them through the desert with a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire at 
at night. He's with them all the time. He takes them to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. There, Moses receives God's law and the Ten Commandments. And so God's presence is on the mountain. God has been with them through this entire time. And now we're at the point where God says it's time to leave the mountain. We need to go on to the promised land. And so as they get ready to leave, God decides to take care of his people in another way. See, they're out in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, traveling. There's not a lot of food. In fact, this many people traveling in a large group through the desert would probably starve to death. But God provides for his people. And he sends them food from heaven, literally food from heaven, bread from heaven called manna. And sometimes people ask me, what do you think manna tasted like? Well, it was bread from heaven, so I assume it tasted kind of like this, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, probably was more nourishing, more, had more nourishment than this. But still, uh, I don't know what it tasted like, but I don't think it really matters because it was free food from God, you know. These people would have starved to death if they didn't have this food, but God provided for them, as he always does. He took care of them, and he sent them this bread from heaven, this manna from heaven, and you know what? After a little bit of eating it, they get dissatisfied with it, and they start to complain and grumble about it. Pick up with me, if you would, Numbers 11, verse 4. It says, some troublemakers among them wanted better food. And soon all the Israelites began complaining. They said, we want meat. We remember the fish we ate for free in Egypt. We also had cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So the Israelites basically turn to God and say, Manna, manna, manna. That's all we ever have to eat is manna. We want something to eat rather than manna. Manna, manna. I just hear them whining and playing like little kids, you know. And God's like, what are you doing? I mean, I'm providing for you. I'm giving you free food. And yet, they're complaining. They're grumbling. They want something else to eat. Now, this wasn't the first time the Israelites had complained, complained to God or complained to Moses. They'd been complaining before they even left Egypt. They never liked their circumstances. Even when God was working to deliver them from Egypt, they're complaining about how God's doing it. I mean, they, they have complained over and over and over again as they've left Egypt and they moved towards the promised land. In fact, if you jump back at the beginning of Numbers chapter 11, the people were complaining then, and God sends fire from heaven to warn them, to tell them to stop complaining and grumbling. And I don't know what this fire from heaven looked like. I don't know if it was like a lightning show or fireworks show. I don't know what was going on, but it scared the people today and Moses prayed and God stopped all the pyrotechnics that he was putting on in order to warn the people. So they've been complaining all along, but now they're at the point where they're complaining about the food. And so I think we can learn a whole lot from this, from these few verses that we just read in this situation that we're going to continue to study about here in Numbers chapter 11. Because I think this passage tells us a whole lot about negativity, but then it also tells us how to deal with negativity when we face it. And the first thing it tells us about negativity is this, negativity is contagious. Did you notice what happened in this passage? It says that some troublemakers started to complain about the manna, and then the entire camp of Israel started to complain about the manna. See, that word troublemakers actually is a word that means rabble in Hebrew. They were the people who joined along the Israelites as they traveled. They were originally part of their group, but they joined along at some point. And so these outsiders start to complain about manna, and pretty soon they fire up the whole crowd, and the entire nation is now complaining about manna. And isn't that how negativity works? It starts small. 
but then it spreads like wildfire, doesn't it? Starts small, but then it spreads like a virus. I'm not sure if you guys can understand that illustration, but it spreads like a virus. It just goes everywhere. And the more you encounter it, the more it spreads. Negativity is contagious. How many of you have ever been in a situation where maybe you're at home, or maybe you're at work, or maybe you're in a classroom, or wherever, and everybody's in a pretty good mood, but then one person comes in who's negative, and they start talking and talking, and pretty soon it just spreads, and it brings the entire mood down of the room, or the house, or wherever you are. That's how negativity works. It is contagious. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. In other words, stuff rubs off. If you constantly surround yourselves with negative people, then that negativity is going to rub off on you. But the opposite is also true. When you surround yourself with people who are full of the fruit of the Spirit... Well, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the rest, that's going to rub off as well. So who are you making sure is around you? You need to surround yourself with people who are going to build you up, not pull you down, because negativity is contagious. But negativity also does something else. It distorts reality. Do you see what happened in this passage? The people start to complain, and they say, hey, we had better food back in Egypt. We had all the fish we could eat back in Egypt, and also we had other stuff to eat that was different, like onions and leeks and melons and cucumbers and garlic. That sounds appetizing, doesn't it? But we had all this other stuff to eat, and we want to go back to Egypt because we had better food back there. And as you're reading this, you're thinking, did you forget that you were slaves in Egypt? Did you forget that you were oppressed in Egypt, that you were mistreated and abused in Egypt, so much so that you cried out to the heavens and God rescued you? Did you forget all that? Yeah, they did. Because that's what negativity does. Negativity blurs our vision so that we don't appreciate what we have. So we don't even see or recognize what we have in front of us anymore. Negativity distorts reality. Let me illustrate it like this. I've got a picture on the screen here of the 2014 women's hockey team, USA. And if you can't tell, they don't look very happy, do they? (laughs) They look kind of upset. And yet, this picture was taken right after they had received silver medals in the Olympic Games. Now, if you're an athlete or if you follow sports, you know that getting a medal in the Olympics is a huge deal. Few people get to participate in the Olympics, let alone get a medal. It's a big deal. And yet, they were just awarded silver medals, and they look upset. You know why? There's a study done by Northwestern University that said consistently, on a consistent basis, bronze medal winners are happier than silver medal winners. You know why? Because silver medal winners are fixated, focused on the fact they were so close to gold. But bronze medal winners are focused on the fact they were so close to not getting a medal at all. See, it's a matter matter of perspective, isn't it? And when you focus on just the negative, you don't see what's right in front of you. You don't see what you actually have, the blessings that you have right in front of you. And that's the situation that the Israelites find themselves in. God has freed them from their slavery. He is providing for them, but they're focused on the negative. And so their vision has been completely blurred and obscured. But negativity also does something else. 
Negativity squeezes the joy out of life. Now, we didn't read on in the passage, but when you do, you will find out that Moses has a conversation with God. And Moses, this man of God, is listening to all the complaining, all the grumbling, and Moses is upset. And look at what Moses says to God. He says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, God, and do not let me face my own ruin. In other words, Moses says, God, I'd rather die than lead these people. Moses isn't in a good place right now, okay? Moses isn't running on full right now, okay? And this is Moses. I mean, this great man of God, this great man of faith that we look up to and respect. I mean, in the book of Exodus, it says this about Moses. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Can you imagine having that reputation? Can you imagine having that relationship with God? I mean, nobody was closer to God than Moses. And at this point in his life, because of all the negativity that's around him, Moses says, I'd rather die than lead these grumbling, miserable people. And let me ask, you ever been there? I mean, maybe not that you're asking God to take your life, but have you ever just had the thought, I'm done, I'm out, I give up, I quit, I just can't do this anymore because of all the negative influences that are around you, all the negativity you're facing. Maybe you're ready to give up on a relationship because just every time you try, you face more and more negativity. Maybe you're ready to give up on some goal of yours because you've just become so pessimistic about ever achieving it. Maybe you've given up on what God wants you to do with your life because you just feel so down right now. I don't know what it is, but you ever been there? We're just ready to give up because you just don't want to face all the pessimism, all the cynicism, all the negativity anymore. That's where... That's where Moses is. But here's the thing, Moses doesn't give up. He keeps on leading the people for many, many more years, and God will use Moses to do great things. Now, the road is rocky after this. It's not easy, but he does continue to lead the people and do what God wants him to do. And I think we can learn a whole lot. I can learn a whole lot from Moses' example here and what God asks him to do. And the first thing that I can learn when it comes to dealing with negativity is this. I need to pray more for people. Very early on in this passage, if you remember when God sent that fire from heaven because the people were grumbling and complaining, you remember what Moses did? Moses prayed for the people. In fact, it says in Numbers 11 verse 2, it says, The people cried out to Moses, and when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. I want you to get this. Moses prayed for the very people who were draining him. Moses prayed for the very people who were upsetting him, who were weighing him down, bringing him down. He prayed for them because he knew that's what he needed to do. And during this time of pandemic and chaos, I feel like I need to pray more for people. I need to pray more for people in general. Like I need to pray more for, intentionally pray more for my neighbors, for my coworkers, for my friends, for my family members. 
for the people that I encounter at church because here's the thing, there are a lot of people struggling right now and even those people who you think aren't struggling might just be covering it up really well. There are a whole lot of people struggling right now and I need to pray more for people by name, intentionally pray for people, but I don't just need to pray for people in general, I also need to pray specifically for those who've hurt me. Specifically for those who have harmed me. I need to pray for those who don't deserve it. Because that's what Jesus asked us to do because that's how we capture the heart of the Father. Look what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, we need to pray for those who've hurt us because that's what God would do. That captures the heart of God. And we don't pray for those who hurt us with this prayer. Oh, God, give them what they deserve. Oh, God, you know, punish them as they deserve. We don't pray that prayer. No, it says love your enemies. We pray for them because we love them in spite of how they've treated us because if God can continue to love us even with everything that we've done to him, then we can love one another. So we learn to pray for others, even those who have hurt us out of love. And here's the thing. I think Jesus tells us to do this for a couple reasons. One, because if we pray for those who have hurt us, it, God may open a door to change their heart. But also, if we pray for those who've hurt us, it may change our hearts. Because what I've had to learn, I've had to, hear, I've had to learn this the hard way, is that it's really difficult to stay mad at somebody when you're praying for them. When you're consistently day in and day out praying for somebody by name who's hurt you, over a period of time, it's really hard to stay mad at them. When you're praying for them and you want the best for them and you want God to work in their lives. So pray for people more, especially those who have hurt you. But I also learned from this example that I should lean on spiritually mature friends more. What happens in this passage is God says to Moses, Moses, you don't have to handle all this weight by yourself. You don't have to lead the people by yourself. He says, I want you to find some godly men, people in your group, some elders and leaders among the people, and I want, I want to empower them to help you lead the people. And this is what God says to Moses. He says, they will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. See, God never intended us to carry the different weights that we carry in this life alone. That's why he gave us the community of the church so that we can have brothers and sisters who are there by our side to help us carry the load. In fact, in Galatians 6 verse 2, the Bible says this, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Let me say something. The Lone Ranger mentality doesn't work when it comes to faith. Now sometimes we have to stand up alone. I get that. But God doesn't want us to for the long term. God wants us part of the community that can build us up and encourage us and help us. And that's why the church is so important. And I just want to let you know right now, if you're here at North Garnett, if you're watching online, we are a community. First Church is a community that wants to help you. And if you are struggling with something right now, if you are hurting right now, if you're dealing with some issue right now, you are not alone. We want to stand by your side. We want to lock arms with you. We want to pray with you. We are here for you. And you might think, well, this is a big church. How am I ever going to get the help that I need? 
Guys, you can go to the hub right after this service. If you're here on site, if you're online, you can go to our online hub. You can talk to somebody. You can private message somebody through our online hub. You can say, hey, I'm struggling with something and I need some help. You can call our church office. You can email our church office. We would be happy to help you in any way we can because we want you to know you are not in this thing alone. About a year or so ago, I can't remember the exact time frame, but one of our staff members showed up late to work, uh, which isn't unusual. But uh, anyway, this staff member showed up late to work, and, but he did text us or call us and let us know that the reason why he was late to work because he got into his vehicle that morning, turned the key, and it wouldn't start because somebody had drilled a hole in his gas tank. Here's a picture of it. He sent it to me. And they had, of course, removed all the gas. And at first I thought, well, because gas was not expensive at the time. I was like, somebody just being mean or what? And, but there was no gas on the ground or anything. They just stole it. And so he was late for work. And so anyway, he ended up taking it to a body shop to get it looked at, you know, automotive place to get it looked at. And when he got to work eventually, he said, and he wasn't going to turn in on insurance because it really wasn't worth it in the end. He was just going to pay out of pocket for it. And some people in our church heard about that. And they went to the place that had his car. They asked what the bill was. And some families got together and they paid for it without him even realizing it, knowing it. So that when he went to pick up his car, the bill had been paid. Now, I get that that's a real literal example of plugging someone's tank and filling it up. I mean, I get that because those people also filled up his tank full of gas as well when he got it. But that's what the church is here to do. That's an illustration of what the church is here to do. The world knows how to punch holes into our spiritual tanks, emotional tanks, physical tanks, social tanks. The church is here to help you plug those holes, fill your tank back up with gas so that you can go where God wants you to go. There's one more thing that I've learned from this passage, and it's this. Don't lose faith in what God wants to do next. See, what's interesting is in Numbers chapter 11, God goes to Moses and he says, listen, I have heard the cries of my people. I know they want meat, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give them meat. Tell them to consecrate themselves. I'll send them meat. And Moses turns to God and says, God, you can't do that. There's not enough meat around. There's not enough fish and animals around to provide enough meat for all these people. You can't do that. That's impossible. And I want you to understand this. This is the same Moses who saw the plagues in Egypt, who witnessed God part the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked across on dry ground. This is the same Moses who witnessed God's presence on the mountain and received God's law and Ten Commandments, spoke to God as a man speaks to a friend face to face. This is the same Moses who has seen God work in miraculous ways over and over and over again. And now he thinks God can't handle groceries. But see, that's what happens when we just focus on the negative. We focus on just what's right in front of us. And we forget that God always has another miracle around the corner. Don't lose sight in what God wants to do next. Look at how God responds to Moses. God says this, the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. In other words, you don't think I can do this? Did you forget who you're talking to? Trust me. See, God isn't just the God of yesterday and today. He's the God of tomorrow. Don't lose sight of the God of the future. Don't lose sight of what God wants to do next.
Because no matter what anyone says, God always has another miracle around the corner. And I don't know what you're dealing with right now. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what your life is like. But if you're ready to quit, if you're ready to give up, if you're saying I'm out right now and you feel like that the situation you're in is never going to get any better, don't lose sight of what God can do next. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're facing right now is not too big for him. And as a nation, as a community, we're looking around at all this stuff that's going on because of the pandemic and the political situation and everything that's going on. It's real easy to just get discouraged and down and say, this is the worst that it's ever been. By the way, study history, it's not. But still, it's the worst that it's ever been. We turn on the news or get on our phones or get on social media and we just get down. God can use this moment. God's not finished with his church yet. He's not finished with us yet. He's not finished with you yet. Never lose sight of what God can do next. The key is in the midst of troubled times, don't look around. Look up. And when you do, he'll lead you where you need to go. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for today and this moment we've had to open up your word and study it. And I just pray that we would listen to your word, the example that we have looked at today. And we will be a people who remember that even in the midst of insults and hardships and persecution, that we can still have joy because we don't look around, we look up. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.